It's Wednesday, July 4th, Independence Day, and this is The Daily Dive. It's July 4th, and it's time for family, barbecues, and fireworks. But what if there were no fireworks? Would you be interested in a drone show instead? As Western states and towns are concerned about wildfire conditions, some are turning to elaborate drone shows, such as the one seen at the latest Winter Olympics. Elizabeth Weiss, tech reporter for USA Today, joins us to talk about a new trend that may be taking place, skipping the booms for drones. The fourth is also a time for grilling and burgers, but would you eat a burger made by a robot? Would you be mad if that robot took your job? As more fast food restaurants are finding that they are short of workers, they are turning to technology to help fill the ranks. Eric Morath, reporter for the Wall Street Journal, joins us to talk about Flippy the burger cooking robot and more automation coming to your local quick serve restaurants. Finally, the story that's been gripping the world the past few days. 12 boys and their soccer coach have just been found after spending 10 days lost in a flooded cave in Thailand. They are safe and in relatively good condition, but the hardest part is yet to come. How do we get them all out safely? The options aren't great. My producer Miranda joins us for all the details. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. God bless our veterans. God bless America. And happy Independence Day to all. Joining us now is Elizabeth Weiss, tech reporter for USA Today. It's Independence Day. Fireworks shows are going to be all over the place. And as technology increases, you know, people have been looking for alternatives. You know, it's uh, bad for pets. They don't like the loud, thunderous booms. And then on the West, a lot of fire danger a lot of times in California, Colorado, Arizona, It's so hot and so dry. There's always a concern of fire danger. So a lot of people are turning to alternatives, even in Canada. Uh, They're going with quiet fireworks to spare the wildlife and pets. But people are also going with a drone alternative. What's going on with these drones? The drones are kind of fascinating. If you watch the um, Winter Olympics, you saw them. It was that huge, it was the Olympic rings and then the image of a skater that was done with 1,200 Intel drones, each that were lighted. It was about 100 meters tall. I mean, these things are huge. The ability to run a bunch of drones as a swarm that are choreographed, and they they have very precise GPS so they can be synchronized and move very close to one another without running into each other, has allowed, effectively, you, if you have a big enough drone swarm, you can just program it kind of like 3D pixels, only you're painting in the sky rather than on a screen. Yeah, it's obviously a different show rather than the big flower blooms of traditional fireworks. But as you said, you can program it to pretty much make any shape so you can get really creative with it. Travis Air Force Base outside of San Francisco specifically is uh, doing one of these shows with those Intel drones, right? Correct. They're working with Intel. They are. And and Travis, so it's out um, to the it's almost closer to Sacramento than it is to San Francisco. It's very dry. We are in the middle of a heat wave here. We're heading back into a drought. Uh, There's an enormous fire up in Lake County that's spreading crazily. And so everybody is on high alert for fires. And the great thing about drones is they are less likely to catch fires. Though I do, for people who love fireworks, I have to say I talked to Cal Fire, which is the California state organization that fights fires, and they they really wanted to make clear that official fireworks shows are actually quite safe. They're, they're regulated. They have to get inspected. The, the biggest fire danger comes from just the backyard fireworks that you let off, you know, that you buy by the roadside. 
Um, that said, a drone is much less likely to start a fire than anything that is, is burning as it floats through the sky. And you can do really interesting things. And we've now got a couple of cities in the West that are switching to drone shows because it was simply too dry and too dangerous to do fireworks. So Aspen, Colorado, there's a couple of towns in Arizona. We've got Travis Air Force Base doing it. And when I talk to people, especially in the fire field, they expect this to expand. I mean, as climate change increases the probability that we will have droughts and high temperatures, they don't come with the boom and you just don't get the boom when you're by one of these big drone shows. You right. you hear kind of a buzzing. It's not an angry buzzing. It's kind <laughs> of like bumblebees, yeah. but it's a really different sound. Yeah, with the drones, I think the, the biggest risk is really just high winds. But what about the cost of these shows? They're more expensive than a traditional fireworks show. They are definitely more expensive. In fact, they must be relatively expensive because Intel certainly did not want to talk about how much they cost. Uh, all they would say, that Intel is actually underwriting the cost of the Travis extravaganza in support of the troops. The, the point that Intel made, well, one, I mean, this is all relatively new. You know, the first drone light shows were done in 2015, I think the one most Americans might have seen was probably when Lady Gaga included drones in her Super Bowl show. The big American flag and all that. Exactly. As this becomes a more built-out technology, it's likely to get cheaper. Intel made the point that a one-time drone show is pretty expensive because you, I mean, they're reusable, so it's not like fireworks. I mean, you burn up fireworks and you have to go make more. With these drones, you you get to use them again and again, but you still have to bring them to wherever you're going to do it. You have to program the show. You have to have people on the ground to set it up. So they make the point that if you do it over multiple days, it actually gets cheaper, which could mean that we're going to start seeing them more at places like Disneyland and amusement parks that are likely to do fireworks shows maybe once a week. You could get a drone set and just keep doing it again and again. Yeah, I think specifically Disneyland was looking for permits to be able to run a few different types of drone shows. So if they haven't started those already, they're surely down the pike. I, I don't want to be a naysayer, but I do appreciate a great fireworks <laughs> show. You know, there is something to the big booms and the, the explosions in the sky. You know, people love fireworks. I mean, fireworks have been around for 12 centuries, and there's a reason that we like seeing them. Uh, I uh, People that have, and I've been getting emails from people all day since this story went up saying, you know, they'll, how, I never want fireworks to go away. I love them. How could we, you know, how, how could you have Fourth of July without the bombs bursting in air? Right, right. So I, I, I don't think that drones will take over entirely. It could be that in the arid west, they do because it's safer. Um, and maybe that'll be, you know, a distinguishing factor. There'll be sh cities and towns that we have a fireworks show and there'll be others that say we have a cool drone show. And then yeah, I guess you choose. All right. Well, no shortage of things to see in the sky this Independence Day. Elizabeth Weiss, tech reporter for USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. You're so welcome. Thanks. Flippy is the, the most tangible example. It's literally a robotic arm with a spatula on it, and it can flip the burger right over. Joining us now is Eric Marath, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. So fast food restaurants and quick serve restaurants are running short of workers. There's not enough people to work there. I know there's a high turnover rate in that industry specifically. And what they're doing is turning to robots to help man some of the uh, duties there. 
what's going on at these restaurants? Yeah, that's right. So there's been a long-held fear that robots would take over and replace Americans' jobs. In the uh, fast food industry, actually, has been an area that economists have identified for, for a long time, five or 10 years is a spot where, you know, automation really could happen. It's a lot of low-skill, repetitive work, the type of stuff that you should be able to automate. But that hadn't been happening, and that was largely because we had an ample labor force of uh, Americans willing to take, uh, you know, relatively low-wage jobs, minimum-wage jobs that you find in, in these restaurants. Well, we've gotten to the point where the unemployment rate is so low and job opportunities are so high that they can't find the workers and, and more of them are turning, uh, turning to robots and other types of automation to, to fill the gap. And that's where we get Flippy the robot. He's going up in Cali Burger chains in California. They want to try to put him in 50 restaurants by the end of the year. It's a $100,000 robot. He flips as many as 2,000 burgers a day. That's what these kinds of restaurants are turning to, things to help them do some of the worst parts of the job. You know, it's hot behind a grill. Sure. Yeah, Flippy is the, the most tangible example. It's literally a robotic arm with a spatula on it, and it can flip the burger right over. And, and you're right, that's what the Cali Burger executives are telling us, is that a lot of times people are leaving the job just because they say it's gross. It's hot and sweaty behind those grills, and uh, they're a pain to clean. Flippy, you can just change the attachment on the robot's arm and can just go to scraping the grill and cleaning it off afterwards. But it's more than just robots. In the terms of like a robotic arm, there, right, you know, right. there's other things that are kind of a little bit more nuanced, but are making a difference. Like Wendy's is rolling out higher tech dishwashers. So previously, the workers had to interact with the dishwashing machine like six different times in the cycle. And now this faster, more expensive dishwasher will be able to get the uh, utensils clean more quickly with less uh, input from workers. Yeah, Duncan actually did something really smart. They did a focus group with former employees and said, hey, what were the worst parts of your job? They took that data and then they said, okay, now let's try to automate this stuff. And that's really important in the current labor market because there's just not a lot of people you know, that are unemployed. The unemployment rate's 3.8%. And so what's happening is other businesses are looking at the kind of the bottom of the labor market. And, and frankly, that's a lot of, in that case, that's fast food workers and saying, well, well, we can pick those people off. So compared to working at a restaurant to working at maybe a Walmart and wages might be about the same, but the Walmart, maybe air conditioned you know, maybe a little slower pace or, or maybe uh, offers you an, a store discount uh, where you can buy a wide variety of things that your family might need. And all those things are something that fast food chains have to compete against. So the fast food chains want to make sure their jobs are just as appealing. Yeah. Another uh, restaurant doing some of this stuff is uh, McDonald's. They have ordering kiosks at restaurants now, so you can order it. They don't, you don't necessarily have to deal with the cashier a lot. They say it's not necessarily getting rid of workers because they can repurpose those employees to do other jobs there. That's exactly right, and that's kind of another trend that's going on in the in the food uh, industry, fast food, and, and restaurants in general. We've kind of seen this explosion. We saw this at, at McDonald's. We see this at Panera, a little bit higher end place, uh, where there's more of these kiosks, more mobile ordering, and then they're having the workers that are there go out there and make sure the restaurant's clean, ask you if you need a refill on your drink, have more of that higher end experience, even um, at a McDonald's store. And, and Americans are shifting some of the their restaurant dollars to fast food or fast casual restaurants away from the traditional sit down restaurant where you have a, a waiter serve on you. There's been studies done that the restaurant industry specifically 
is highly susceptible to, you know, high amounts of automation. Obviously, there's flippy things like that. There's kiosks and, and just better ways to have the workers interact with technology to help them. But really, people are still skeptical that you're going to get a full restaurant run by a robot. One thing that's kind of interesting is... To some degree, this has existed many decades ago. There used to be these things called automats, where it was sort of like a combination of a of a vending machine in a cafeteria, and people sort of thought that would be the future of restaurants. And then McDonald's came along and and was able to make fresh food fast, and and that kind of changed everything. So, you know, it's probably going to be a bit of an evolution. But I think if the unemployment rate stays low, more restaurants are going to be considering this, and we're seeing this, in, especially in places where they're doing a lot of business and places where wages are higher in California, Massachusetts, New York. And I think you'll see it move further to more parts of the country. So if you haven't seen a, a flippy in your neighborhood yet or haven't ordered on a kiosk yet in a McDonald's, I think that day is coming soon to more parts of the country. At least as it stands now, those jobs are still there. You don't have to worry about a robot taking your job. It was specifically with Flippy. Somebody's making those patties and seasoning them, and then the robot just cooks it. So and they still need people to work at these uh, sort of restaurants. Eric Marath, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure. Happy to join you anytime. I was here on the ground when we got the initial ruse, and I do feel like we were all celebrating. You have all of Thailand here, you have all these countries here working together in order to make this happen. And I can't think of a single person in here that hasn't been working day and night, uh, supporting in their way. Whatever is the most viable, you know, considering the conditions of the children, you know, the environmental conditions, etc. Like all those factors go into risk, ass risk assessment when it comes to planning. This is probably some of the most difficult type of diving there is. Joining me now is my producer, Miranda, to talk more about this Thai soccer team. So this is a story that's captivated the world again. It has uh, details reminiscent of the 33 Chilean miners that were trapped below the earth. These team of young kids, soccer players, are trapped in a cave in Thailand. What's going on? The great news is after a British diving team set out looking for the boys, they found them alive and in relatively decent shape given what they're going through. But there are still really big challenges and hurdles before these kids see the light of day. There's 12 boys and a soccer coach, and they've been surviving for at least 10 days. They went missing June 23rd. They're hanging out on a dry ledge more than a mile from the mouth of the cave. So they walked in barefoot. They had left their shoes outside and then rain started to fall. The cave filled up and now they're stuck. Some of the divers that have spoken out to media now said, you know, one of the big questions, how have they been surviving? One of the divers said that they've been drinking water from the cave walls. They have no food, so they're in a weakened state. Uh, as you said, they have found them. Doctors are down there now. Mm -hmm. But you mentioned this British diving team that really was instrumental in helping find them. Who are these guys? They're Rick Stanton and John Valanthan, and they're considered to be the best cave diving team in the world. These are the guys. They said, if you were to try to send out a diver, these are the people. Stanton was made a member of the Order of the British Empire in 2012 after saving the life of six soldiers trapped by rising floodwaters in Mexico. Yeah. And this leads into also one of the methods that they're looking into saving the kids. There's a lot of problems with that. He specifically taught these guys to how to cave dive uh, and use scuba gear and they were able to get them out after some time. 
that's one of the things that they're trying to do with these kids. They don't know how to get them out. The position that they're in in the cave is a, more than a mile away from the entrance. They're about half a mile straight down through rock. So there's all sorts of different ways of they're, they're looking into uh, saving them, either drilling through rock, teaching the kids how to scuba dive. The kids don't know how to swim, Oscar. Right. They're aged 11 to 16, and they don't know how to swim, let alone scuba dive. And the divers are saying that for them, even this was a challenging dive because a lot of it is very, very narrow. It's single file, one at a time. There aren't too many spots to take a break and get air pockets. A lot of it is pitch black. And when it starts raining, that creates a current inside the cave. So you're going to be having to swim against current. They said it's very challenging. So one of the big problems with cave diving is the adrenaline factor. They don't want these boys to panic, rip off their mask, and then drown. And these British divers, they asked them in previous articles, because they're very famous, they said, hey, what's the key to cave diving? They say you got to keep a cool head. Any type of adrenaline, as you said, is going to lead you the wrong way. And these kids that don't know how to swim, you're leading them through dark, narrow passages in a cave. The adrenaline is going to start pumping up really high. They even asked one of these other divers, could you strap a kid to your back and swim them out? But these passages are so narrow, they can't do that. It wouldn't work. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened to the kids. They went into the cave. The floodwaters came in because it's monsoon season in Thailand. And they couldn't go back the same way. Obviously, they couldn't swim, so they can't go back through the water. Because it's monsoon season, Oscar, it's likely that these kids and their coach will be stuck in the cave for three to four months. They said it was a three-hour round trip from the beginning of the cave all the way to where they were. For them to get out, it's a it's an hour and a half trip. So these kids that don't know how to swim, that's a huge ordeal for them to go through. And they're in a weakened state because they haven't had food. They do have doctors giving them stuff, but... They have a nurse and a doctor who came to visit them and Thai Navy SEAL medics have agreed to stay with them until they're released. So they're not alone in the cave anymore, but their muscles have atrophied. They're in a very weakened state. They can barely stand up. They're a vitamin D deficiency. I think they said they're trying to install a phone line so they can speak to their parents and whatnot. Here's the biggest question. Why did they do it in the first place? It's just an odd thing to hear. They left all their shoes. They left their backpack and they went into the cave after, you know, soccer practice or whatever it was. Why are they there? Okay, so apparently it's kind of a rite of extremely dangerous passage in this town. What they do is they go in after leaving their shoes, their backpacks, and they run into the cave. And there's a section where they're supposed to write their names on a wall and then run back out. And that's just something that kids in this town do. And in this situation, they got stuck. And that's coming. that's information coming from one of the... Uh, divers who is uh, part of the rescue efforts. Right. They spoke to the kids and said, well, what are you guys doing in here? Like I said, this has captured worldwide attention. There's thousands of people that are involved in this. The U.S. sent a team out there. The uh, British team is are the ones who found them. Uh, the Thai military is heavily involved. They're the ones that are actually in charge of the whole uh, production. But it is just an amazing story. And it's not going to end anytime soon. It's going to take time to get them out. And I'm sure... Now that they know the opening of the cave and how the whole process is going to work, it's going to be another huge televised event, just like the Chilean miners coming out of the uh, the mine. We'll keep following this story. Thanks for joining us, Miranda. Thank you, Oscar. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. We love the feedback, so don't forget to leave us a comment and give us a rating. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno 
and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.